we need to create a meat-like experience in order to actually satiate this problem because people want meat and there's just no getting around it. Like it, it's not that, uh, it's not like we just need to raise more awareness or tell people about the problems of animal agriculture. Uh, that usually is pretty insufficient to actually change behavior. We need to be able to compete on taste, price, and convenience. And that is how we ultimately create a more sustainable food supply when the better option is not the more expensive option or the less convenient option, but making it the, it'll only become default once we start competing on those three criteria. This is C2C, where we cover innovation in the food and CBG business from conception to consumption. Welcome to the podcast, everybody. Great guest today, Paul Shapiro, CEO of The Better Meat Co. and a returning guest on this show. So it's going to be really exciting because we last talked to Paul almost two years ago. A lot has changed. Paul, welcome back. Hey, thanks so much, Gary. It's great to be on with you. I'm very honored to be back as a repeat guest. Maybe I might even three-peat someday. I might become like the Tom Brady uh, here. We'll see. Uh, we'll see. I don't, I don't want to put the cart before the horse, but I'm honored to be a, a repeat guest here. Oh, that's that's terrific. You can you could be the, the Tom Brady of alt-protein. Um, <laughs> Got a long way to go. I think he's more than three-peated. I think he's won time like six or seven Super Bowls. I mean, it's crazy. Uh, but anyway, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, so we got a lot to talk about. So, you know, why don't why don't you just launch and and tell tell our listeners what's changed for you, and what's changed for your company, Better Meat Co. in the last almost two years. Well, you know, it's funny you should ask, Gary, because um, you know startups always take different paths than you might expect or intend. And actually, from the beginning, the Better Meat Co. has really um, I would say pivoted less than some other companies might in, in similar spaces. Um, and so we remain a B2B ingredients player in the plant protein world. So we make plant protein formulations that we sell to food companies that they can either use as the basis of their fully plant-based meats, or they can blend it into their animal-based meats so that they can improve sustainability, make a better tasting product, and a healthier product too. So for example, when we last chatted, we were working with Purdue Farms, and we still work with Purdue Farms, to uh, enable them to make a blended chicken nugget. So it's half chicken and half plant-based. And those products are called Purdue Chicken Plus. They're sold in thousands of supermarkets, and they're doing quite well. In fact, according to news stories, that product has gone from two years ago being 0% of Purdue's frozen chicken nugget sales to being 20% of their nugget mm. sales today, which is a pretty amazing ascent. Similarly, uh, the Food Network named that product the best tasting frozen chicken nugget in America. Focus groups, including Purdue's own, find that people prefer the taste of the blended nugget over the conventional nugget that is made of solely chicken. And so you can see how if more big food companies would blend so they could use fewer animals and more plant protein, you could have a much, much lighter footprint on the planet, reduce saturated fat, reduce cholesterol and calories, and help animals out at the same time. So that is really the premise of what we've been doing with companies like Purdue. But we also have a new generation of ingredients. We call it Riza, that's R-H-I-Z-A. And Riza is a fermented mycelium that is delicious, it's succulent, it's way more meat-like than extruded plant proteins. And we have recently finished building 
a, a, a relatively large mycoprotein fermentation facility here in Sacramento, where we are looking forward to supplying our customers with our next generation of protein, which will be coming not from extruded plant proteins, but from whole food mycelium protein. So really two very distinct product lines now and how you know the the whole plant-based protein but also alt protein space i'll call it which sort of overlap but are also sort of different there's been so many new offerings in the last couple of years so many other things in the works paul if you were to compare your two product lines against what's out there uh you know what what makes them different or unique? Well, there's nobody. Let, let's just start with the first one, which we call our classic line. And there's nobody out there really offering formulas for blending. So sure, people are blending mushrooms into meat, or uh, they might be blending like soy TVP into meat. But those are just single ingredients uh, that have deficiencies for a variety of reasons. What we're offering are custom formulations that are made up of plant proteins, fibers, fats, and flavors that are designed to mimic both the taste and the texture of the meat that they're going into so that you can include them at a high inclusion rate, like anywhere from one third to half of the whole product. And it won't really taste much different than the other product that like a conventional product that's solely based on meat. So that's really the, the ingenuity of our classic line. With Ryza, it's actually just dramatically different. And I'll tell you why. So if you think about right now, plant-based meat, all of it for the most part is made from either soy, pea, or wheat, and or some combination of those three crops. And you know, plants just don't have a meat-like texture. That's why you have to process them in lots of ways to make them more meat-like. So just to take as an example, you think about like peas, you when you grow a field of peas, how do you get it to look like meat? Well, you know, plants and animals are very far apart on the evolutionary tree. So what you got to do is basically mill the peas into a flour and that flour is only about 20% protein. So then you need to fractionate it and isolate it. So you're removing the fiber, you're removing the fat, so you're concentrating the protein. Then you take that pea protein powder and subject it to a process known as twin screw high moisture extrusion. And that heats up and pressurizes the protein powder so dramatically that it creates like a molten lava almost. And it then uh, comes out and the differential and the pressure causes it to puff out. And that way you basically realign the protein within that pea so that instead of being a globular protein like what plants have, it turns out to be more stringy like what animal meat is made out of. And that's how you get to plant-based meat. Well, what we are doing is not relying on plants at all because plants are so far away from animals evolutionarily that it takes a long time to get them to be more like meat. Instead, we are using a different kingdom altogether. We're using the kingdom of fungi. And fungi are an entirely different kingdom. They're not animals and they're not plants, but many people think of them as being in the middle, right? They're kind of in between plant and animals, and that's not true. They're actually much, much closer to animals than they are to plants. This is why hmm. mushrooms have been used for centuries as a meat substitute in Asian cuisine because they just have a naturally meaty type texture. So, uh, you know, if you think about uh, fungi, they breathe in oxygen like animals. They don't breathe in CO2 like plants do. Um, plants photosynthesize, you know, they just put themselves in the sun and that's how they grow. That's not what fungi do at all. Uh, they, like animals, have to go out and look for their food and collect their food. 
So that is what that, these are just some of the ways that fungi are much more similar to animals. But the basic point is that when you're using fungi protein, you're starting at such a more animal-like texture that you don't have to do as much. So in our fermentation process, what we do is we essentially feed potatoes into the fermenter, let our fungi consume those potatoes, and the potato has about 1% protein. Well, when these fungi consume it, they're converting those carbohydrates into protein. So they're taking a 1% protein food and converting it into a 45% protein food. So think about that. Just in the same way that like a cow eats grass and converts that grass into a steak, our fungi are consuming potatoes and converting it into succulent animal-free meat. So after we remove it from the fermenter, the only processing step that we do, the only thing, is water removal. We don't have to fractionate. We don't have to extrude. We don't have to isolate. We just remove water, and it naturally has a meat-like texture. And that is really the magic of what we're doing with Ryza. And so in addition to being a more meat-like texture, it's a whole food, unlike other uh, ingredients that are like plant protein extrudates that are commonly used in plant-based meat today. So when we had you on the show almost two years ago, you had just started working with Purdue uh, now, mm-hmm. obviously, that's really taken off. Tell us about uh, where you are on distributing and getting into the hands of consumers your new Ryza-based uh, products. Yeah, sure. So, you know, with our classic line, we sell to Purdue, and we also sell into the crab industry and the burger industry and the chicken, other chicken companies and so on. However, on Ryza, we just completed construction of our microprotein fermentation facility. So, Right now, we're recording this in August 2021, where we are finishing up the commissioning of the plant. And within about a month or so, we will uh, be done, and then we will start running and actually putting Ryza out into the market. We've already uh, met with a number of companies who uh, are eager to become customers of the Ryza product. And uh, there's definitely vastly more demand than there is supply right now. And we are going to partner selectively with the right companies to help us scale this technology up so that we can bring a river of Ryza to the masses. Mm. And you, you, you had kind of a top secret project here, right? You kept this under wraps. Why'd you do that? Well, you know, we've been working on fermentation for a long time. Um, how, you know, even before we did that episode together a couple years ago, we were working on this for some time. So, um, this was not something that was necessarily like a new project that we took on at the same time. We didn't want to be touting what we were doing with this before building a facility where people could actually get it. Now, maybe that was the wrong idea. Maybe we should have been publicly touting it all along. But we weren't sure why we would necessarily tout something that we couldn't sell. Now, you know, entrepreneurs do that regularly, of course, but we wanted to have not just something where we were going to promise that years from now we're going to do something cool. We wanted to be able to actually build a facility where we can make it, then announce it, and then show that we could actually sell it as well. You know, we are a very uh, a very urgency-focused company. Uh, to us, the problems that we are trying to solve with climate change and the animal welfare problems and more are so urgent. They're so pressing that we want to scale up quickly and get our product into lots of stomachs. That's why we're partnered with Purdue and others. And with Ryza, you know, we just didn't see a benefit to talking about it yet until we were ready to actually sell it. Yeah, yeah. Well, sounds like it was a good strategy, and it sounds like you've already lined up a lot of eager buyers. So 
sounds like you're doing it in the right sequence. So, so let's let's talk about your your book, Paul. We talked about it a lot in in our previous podcast episode. Your book, Clean Meat. Listeners, if you if you haven't read it yet, I encourage you to check it out. It's a great book. Um, I guess this kind of takes us into the third area, right? If we think of traditional plant based soy or pea or what have you as ingredients, then we think of the second area. You've moved into rhiza and fungi. Um, Clean Meat talked extensively about the third area, which is really cultivated or cell cultured meat. So. When we talked about it last, uh, it, it was more promise than actual delivery. There were all sorts of issues with economies of scale and so on and so forth. And I think you, you pointed out one of the biggest issues was funding. It was really the, at the seed funding stage. But now some big, big funding raises have gone into places at uh, previously Memphis Meats, now rebranded Upside and some other places. So what's your view on the whole progress in this uh, cultivated or cell-cultured meat area? There's been a lot of progress in terms of especially what you're referring to here, Gary, which is the funding rounds that these companies have had, which have been massive. And we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars flowing into the space now. So that's been exciting. Probably the biggest thing that's happened, in my view, is what happened in Singapore. So Eat Just is now actually selling cultivated chicken in Singapore. It's the first place on earth that has legalized the sale of such products and the first company to actually commercialize it. And so there were many people who believed that this was a technology that was just never going to actually get into the market. And now those people have been proven wrong. At the same time, it still is far from actually making any dent in the market. You know, we're, we're talking about very nascent days. And I mean, plant-based meat has been on the market for decades and it still is less than 1% of the total meat market. Whereas cultivated meat is, you know, 0. 0.00000 something uh, of the total meat market right now. And so you're talking about something that, yeah, I do think it's going to come on the market and there will be companies selling it, but it's going to be a long time before it makes any real dent, you know, even to get to 1% of the meat market. I think you're talking about maybe a decade out. There are other people who are more bullish than I am on that projection. Uh, I hope they're right and I hope I'm wrong, but I just mm. don't see a way that the infrastructure scales to get to that point where it's going to be like 1% of the global meat market. Um, within 10 years, I don't know. I mean, plant-based meat isn't anywhere near that right now. And look at mm -hmm. how much, you know, how many, you know, how much money is being spent there. So um, I'm excited for it, but I think it's more of a long-term solution. But once it is actually making a dent, I think you're going to see rapid transformation in the marketplace, even if that is, mm -hmm. you know, many years away. Mm. So call this whole space whatever you want to alt protein or whatever with all the different offerings more new offerings popping up all the time um try to try to get inside the head of the consumer for us paul where, where how do you think they're absorbing and reacting to all the different options that are that are out there and you know what do, what do you think's going on with consumers uh, I think that consumers increasingly recognize that there is some vague concern about um, the amount of meat that people are eating. But meat is a very in, innate desire that people have. And generally, people eat as much meat as they can get. So in countries like China and India and Brazil, where they're having expanding middle classes, people are eating more and more meat. 
even in the United States, people were eating more and more meat today. Meat consumption is on the rise, not the fall right now in the United States. And so I think what consumers want, though, is a meat experience. They don't necessarily want animals to be raised and slaughtered. They want a meat experience. So in the same way, when you turn on a light switch, you want the experience of an illuminated room. You're not thinking about whether the energy came from fossil fuels or you're not thinking about whether it came from renewables. You just want light. Well, I think a lot of people just want meat, but they would rather have meat that didn't involve all of the externalities that are associated with conventional meat production today, from the animal cruelty concerns to the antibiotic resistance, the pandemic amplification risk, the climate change risk, the deforestation and more. And so um, there was an event that happened here in California just a few weeks ago where a group of cows escaped from a slaughter plant in Southern California and they uh, ran around residential neighborhoods. As you can imagine, nearly everybody who saw this story was rooting for the cows. You know, they're thinking, wow, good for them. They, they escaped. Well, the, many of those people who are rooting for the cows, of course, are also eating burgers. So there's a mm. cognitive dissonance there, but it just shows that people want meat, not necessarily slaughter. And so uh, what I think is that it's incumbent upon the industry to provide that meat experience without all of the problems of raising animals for food. And so that can come from clean meat or cultivated meat, which is you know real meat grown from animal cells. It can come from plant-based meat. It can come from using fungi fermentation like we at the Better Meat Co. are doing. Um, or maybe there's other ways too that people aren't yet pursuing that you can create a meat-like experience. But we need to create a meat-like experience in order to actually satiate this problem because people want meat. And there's just no getting around it. Like, it's not that uh, it's not like we just need to raise more awareness or tell people about the problems of animal agriculture. Uh, That usually is pretty insufficient to actually change behavior. We need to be able to compete on taste, price and convenience. And that is how we ultimately create a more sustainable food supply when the better option is not the more expensive option or the less convenient option, but making it the, it'll only become default once we start competing on those three criteria. Mm. So people want a really, really, really good analog. And then if it's really good, then yeah, they, they would like to not have the guilt. Um, yeah, it's. I mean, I don't know how much guilt you feel when you turn on your light if you're thinking that it's coming from fossil fuels. I'd imagine probably not that much, even though you probably are somebody who cares about climate change. So, you know, we rationalize our behavior. Um, we generally, you know, don't feel much guilt, I think. But when the behavior change comes is when an alternative is just better. And then it's like, why wouldn't you change to it? You know, if it was cheaper to get our energy from solar rather than from fossil fuels, Maybe then we'd start feeling guilt. <laughs> I don't know. Um, mm. But I, I think that, you know, people recognize there's a problem, but they don't think that they are the ones who are going to solve it. They want the food companies to actually do better and the agriculture industry to do better and provide better alternatives. And I think they want the government to help out as well in some cases with R&D funding um, and other ways like maybe tax incentives and other things that can be done to uh, further accelerate the progress toward a fossil free future, a fossil free free future, a, a fossil fuel free future and <laughs> a um, and, and, you know, a better meat future as well. So you've made the point that people are eating more meat, uh, even with all these alternatives. It has not really made a significant dent in consumer behavior or market share, uh, although it's probably going to come. The only question is when. But. 
Let me ask you this, Paul. Uh, the change has already started to happen, though, on the dairy side. Fluid milk consumption is down at least 15%, maybe more. Tons of consumers have pivoted to those analogs, whether it's soy or almond or oat milk or what have you. So how come, in your view, how come um, those plant-based alternatives and analogs have been taking market share, but it hasn't been the case with meat yet? Well, I think a few reasons. So first, it's important to recognize that, yes, those um, products have grown in market share. However, milk is not, cow's milk is not just losing out to plant-based milk. Cow's milk is also losing out to things like bottled water um, and other beverages that aren't necessarily, you know, milk alternatives. They're just are different beverages that people are getting more into. So, you know, a large portion of that decline in fluid milk consumption is really from increasing in like uh, in water rather than uh, plant based milk. However, plant-based milk has exploded in a way that plant-based meat has not, as you point out correctly. And I think that one of the reasons is that it's typically sold at a much higher cost than the uh, animal-based meat. Whereas, you know, the way that plant-based milk became so popular was that first it entered the dairy aisle and it was put in packages that made it look like regular milk, like a carton. And it uh, then uh, started competing with much lower costs. So, you know, you look now and like silk soy milk is marketed oftentimes competitively with cow's milk, as an example. Uh, There's also, I think, an increasing recognition that cow's milk maybe isn't the best thing for humans, that cows produce milk for their calves, not for humans. And we need cow's milk about as much as we need giraffe's milk, as an example. So I think that's just a very different thing than with meat, where not only do people not feel that way about meat in terms of health and, and its naturalness, but also... Plant-based meat is sold for a lot more than animal-based meat. Uh, uh, My wife and I were at um, Safeway recently and we saw a package of uh, Beyond Burgers that were $5.99 for two quarter pound patties. So that means that you're talking about $12 a pound here for those patties, which is multiples over what it costs for uh, conventional commodity beef patties. So you're looking at that and it's like, well, you know, you really got to want it to pay that much. And if it were dramatically cheaper, you could see how it would come uh, into far better competition than uh, in the same way that plant-based milks have, I think. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so a lot of factors there. Cost. Um, some people are lactose intolerant. I've never heard of anybody being chicken intolerant, right? So a lot of different <laughs> factors there. I'm here with uh, Paul Shapiro, who is CEO of the Better Meat Co. Paul, let me let me ask you to take your crystal ball out now. Um, where where do you think this whole thing, this whole space, is going to be in a couple of different time windows? Where do you think it's going to be in about five years, then maybe about ten years, and then maybe about twenty years? Well, I'm notoriously bad, Gary, at making predictions. Uh, you know, it's, uh, exhibit A, I, I, when Donald Trump announced his uh, candidacy for presidency, I joked with a friend of mine that I thought I was more likely to win than he was. Um, and so, uh, boy, how wrong I was. So uh, that's just one of many wrong predictions that I've made. So I would take what I say as my predictive powers is uh, pretty limited. However, all that said, I do think that uh, plant-based meat is going to explode. And I do think that it's going to take up a much 
much bigger portion of the market than it does today. Right now, it's like a rounding error. You know, it's uh, if you look at it, not in terms of dollars, but if you look at it in terms of volume, which from a sustainability perspective is the most important thing. And in terms of volume, it's still far less than one percent, even in the United States. And of course, much lower uh, around the globe. So here's what I predict. Not only will plant based meat explode, but I believe that right now for a lot of people, they associate the word protein really with like a hunk of flesh from a once living animal's body. In the future, though, I think people are going to have a much more diverse definition of protein. There'll be a much more diverse portfolio of protein where, yes, there will still be animal protein, but there will also be protein coming from plants, proteins coming from microbial fermentation, protein coming from animal cell culture, uh, maybe from other sources too that we don't even think about right now. And so I think that we're going to have far more novel and interesting culinary experiences than we do now because we'll have such a more diverse portfolio of proteins. So, for example, you think about like uh, the time after cows were domesticated, but before humans had learned how to curdle milk into cheese. So people were still, you know, were drinking cow's milk, but they hadn't yet realized how to make cheese. At that time, nobody had ever fantasized about Gouda or Brie or Cheddar or American or any Swiss or any other type of cheese, right? Nobody even thought about it. Cheese is a relatively novel food category to humanity that is not comparable to any other food category. Nobody says, oh, yeah, cheese tastes like X because there isn't something else that it tastes like. And so I believe that this type of uh, food tech that is being worked on right now by companies like the Better Miko and others is going to lead to those types of categories of novel culinary experiences that currently nobody has dreamt of. Nobody's thought of it at all. Um, that we will enable do new types of experiences that are just going to create categories of food that didn't exist before. So rather than just merely mimicking meat, which is good enough, and it's so a hard thing to do and really good to do, um, but I think we'll create new food experiences and it will be a far more interesting way to live. And I assume the early adopters of those new categories are going to be younger generations, more so than older generations. Yeah, I think at first. But, you know, if something is good enough, lots of people will do it. Um, I'm sure that younger people adopted smartphones faster than older people did. But, you know, it's pretty universal now for the most part. So um, same thing with, you know, having Internet and and, uh, digital photography and so on. So I, I do think that like the benefits will just be so much dramatically better that e- even late adopters will still get in on it, right? And it's kind of like streaming. Like, you know, how many people are still using DVDs or VHSs? Probably not that many um, because, you know, even the late adopters have now adopted it. Mm-hmm. So switching to Better Meat Co., um, Congratulations on all your success with, uh, as you call it, your classic line, your partnership with uh, companies like Purdue. Sounds like uh, on the fungi side, you're seeing some some great early signals. You're going to be enormously successful with that as well. But what can you share with our listeners on what you might have done differently if you could go back in time? Any Any lessons learned or things you would have done differently? Yeah, it's funny you asked that, Gary, because... I actually have wondered whether we did the right thing as we were just talking a few minutes ago about not really touting our fermentation platform earlier. We were working on it all along. Um, but, you know, when I look at other companies in our space who were touting things, even though they were essentially at bench scale and they're raising really large amounts of money, I wonder 
would we have been smarter to tout it earlier? And I don't know, like I can't run the clock and play the experiment again, but I've wondered like, was not talking about it publicly really a good idea or not? I don't know the answer to that. Um, I also, you know, constantly wonder whether um, it is preferable to be a B2B ingredients company versus a CPG branded company. We have remained committed to B2B as our strategy. We have never strayed from that. We've never really entertained becoming a CPG company, but people love the Rise of Product so much. Every time they taste it, they say, this is the best alt meat I've ever had. And I can't tell you, like, you know, how many times people say, you need to market this. Uh, but I don't think we're going to. I think we're going to partner with other companies who have better distribution and marketing prowess than we do and enable them to make the best alt meat that anybody's ever had. Mm. Well, I can't wait. To, I can't wait to try it. It sounds fabulous. Gary, come on out to Sacramento, man. We would love to have you out here and give you a tour <laughs> and a tasting of the future of protein. Oh, all right. Next time I'm in the area, I'm going to take you up on that. We would be um, honored to have you here, and we'll roll out the red carpet. Uh, appreciate it. Um, so, looking across the whole space, whether it's you know the the decades old you know plant based, or what you're doing with fungi, or what uh, companies are attempting to do now with cultivated, um, what do you what do you think the big speed bumps are? What do you what do you think uh, the biggest challenges are out there? Well, one of them is the CapEx costs. It just costs a lot of money to do this. Um, the second is going to be uh, issues relating to like, maybe product labeling, regulatory approvals, and so on. Um, you know, we're doing pretty interesting things, and as are many companies in this space. And I think there, I think it's really incumbent to have a collaborative attitude in the uh, alt protein space so that companies can work together, even competitors can work together on areas of common interest, like the two things that I just mentioned, like, you know, dealing with regulatory bodies and uh, labeling issues and so on. So those are some of the key things, I think. But, you know, really, you know, as with everything, it seems like money is a limiting factor, unfortunately. Mm. Mm. And you've said some of that's changing, but still, uh, still challenges out there on the CapEx side, right? Yeah, I think so. And it is changing. You know, you see companies raising a lot of money right now. Um, but in order to make the dent that is needed, uh, you know, like just take cultivated meat as an example. Uh, yeah, companies are raising hundreds of millions of dollars now, which is fantastic. It's amazing. But in order to really build up the infrastructure needed to start getting to like somewhere between one to five percent of the meat industry, you're talking about billions of dollars of CapEx. Billions with a B. Um, so, you know, somebody's going to have to pay for that. And... Um, it's just, you know, it's a lot. It's a lot to do. Mm-hmm. So I know uh, uh, story you told, uh, you kept things under wrap with what you're doing with fungi for a while. Is there anything that you can share on what's next for either you or Better Meat Co.? Well, we're really looking forward to having Ryza get commercialized and out into the world. So that's the biggest focus for us, for sure. Um, but we're already designing our next plant. So the, this Ryza factory is, like I said, is just a demonstration scale facility. Um, and we are going to be building a full scale plant. And so we're going to go out and raise our Series A round, which will enable us to get the CapEx that we require in order to build a full scale plant and allow us to actually produce a product that can start making a real dent in the amount of meat that is being consumed and get a really wonderful new generation of alternative protein out on the market. 
can you can you give any uh you know after you do that raise and after you build the facilities can you give any ballpark are we talking about after all that said and done are you going to make a thousand pounds a day uh, you know what what oh, range are you talking that, about uh, much much more than that yeah so we would be looking at making hundreds of thousands of pounds per month we can already produce mm. thousands of pounds a month we can produce thousands of pounds a month right now so, you know, mm-hmm. we're looking at, at, you know, seeking to produce hundreds of thousands, if not millions of pounds per month. Mm. Fantastic. Fantastic. So I ask all of our guests, Paul, the same question um, for for. But but let me narrow it down to your space, you know, the the uh, plant based or all protein space. What what advice do you give to two different sets of folks? First, uh, innovators already working in your space. And second, new people just starting their career in this space. Uh, for the innovators, my main suggestion would be to attempt to do something really great, that it's easy to take the safer option and try to um, stick within the boundaries. Uh, but, you know, my experience has been that very few times have people done magnificent things by doing by taking the cautious approach. What we've done is really swung for the fences by trying to through extensive R&D and experimentation here in Sacramento, trying to figure out new ways to get to the same end, right? Like everybody wants a meat-like experience and there's lots of ways you do it with peas, with soybeans, with wheat, but we're doing it through a particular type of fungi fermentation. And that was risky, it was expensive, and I think it's paying off. Uh, For people who are looking to get into the space, what I would suggest is that this space needs you. You know, what I learned in writing the book Clean Meat is that many of the people who run these companies that you think of as like really being behemoths, right? Uh, Companies that have raised hundreds of millions of dollars. These are people who had no more experience or reason to start a company than you do. You know, many of them were not business people. They were not former serial entrepreneurs. They weren't scientists. They were just people who wanted to make a difference and build a better food system that has a smaller footprint on the planet and on animals. And they took the leap to go out and do it, knowing that most startups fail. Most startups are, you know, just don't make it. And so it's risky to do, but anything that's worthwhile typically is risky to do. So my suggestion is even if you feel like you may not be qualified to do it, don't let that mental barrier restrain you and prevent you from going out and trying to make something good happen in the world. I can assure you that if you read the book, Clean Meat, you're gonna read stories of people who had never even met each other. They were just basically early 20s people who'd never even met each other except through online chats who ended up starting companies that raised hundreds of millions of dollars and are doing amazing things in the world. So I would just encourage you to get onto the field and do it. Don't become paralyzed by being uh, just trying to analyze everything. You don't need to read a million books. You know, if you are looking to uh, learn to play soccer, as an example, you're not going to learn to play soccer by reading books about how to play soccer. It doesn't hurt to read books about how to play soccer, but you're going to learn by actually getting on the field and playing. So that's my main recommendation, to get on the field and play. Start trying to make a dent in the problem that is so urgent, so pressing, which is what we're doing to the planet and animals and to public health and more. We need to find different ways to produce uh, meat-like experiences for people without animals, and the industry needs you. There's not nearly enough people, money, or innovation in this industry yet. There's a huge, wide-open space in front of of us, and you could be a leader in that space. So I hope you'll do it. 
Inspiring. Thank you. Thank you for that inspired message. I hope some of our listeners get inspired by you and take you up on that advice. Feel free to contact me and get in touch with me anytime through the Better Meat Co. website. I'd love to hear from you. Fantastic. Um, listeners, reach out. Um, so, Paul, before we go into wrap-up, any other, any other comments or words of, of wisdom for our audience? The only other thing maybe I would say is that, you know, there's a lot of times when uh, life treats people harshly, pushes you down, maybe you fall down, maybe you're pushed down, who knows. And I have learned that, you know, through running my own company now for about a little bit more than three years, you know, it's hard to do. And it's hard work. There's a, there's a funny saying that I like, which is when you start your own company, you will sleep like a baby because you will wake up every two hours and cry. And, you know, there's something to that. Um, <laughs> I, I, I hear it. However, you know, there's a great philosopher who is named Rocky Balboa. And he said <laughs> that in life, it isn't about how hard you can hit. It is about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. And that is how winning is done. And every time we face a challenge, either in my personal life or at work, I just think about that, that can you just keep moving forward? Can you get up and just keep going? And, you know, it sucks. Sometimes bad things happen, but you just get up and keep moving forward and try to do as much good in the world as you can for the limited amount of time that we're on this planet. And that's what I'm trying to do. And if you're trying to do that too, please contact me. I'd love to work with you to help make that happen. I'd like to thank my guest today, Paul Shapiro, CEO of Better Meat Co. Returning guest. It was fantastic catching up after almost two years, all the exciting things that have been going on both in the industry and specifically at Better Meat Co. Paul, thanks so much for returning to the podcast. Gary and Mercedes, thank you both. To, thank you so much to you both. I'm honored to be a two-time guest, and uh, I think that Brady has actually won six Super Bowls, not seven. So I, I have like four more to go <laughs> to catch up with him. So let's get it on the calendar. Thanks for listening to C to C, where we cover innovation in the food and CPG business from conception to consumption. Just type the letters C T O C, no spaces, to find us on iTunes, Stitcher, Podbeam, and Google Play.